Hello and welcome to this week's panel edition of The Bunker. I am your host, Alex Andreu. On today's podcast, with a G7 summit this weekend, global Britain seems pulled in several opposite directions. Is this a moment of opportunity, peril or a bit of both? Did the COVID-19 virus really escape from a Wuhan lab? Will we ever know? And does it actually matter? Leveling up, delivering on the people's priorities and putting rocket boosters on their recovery. Are they just next year's oven-ready empty mantras? And as Trump's blog flops after only a month, what grand projects have my guests given up on before barely unboxing the equipment? All this and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the Bunker. Grab yourselves a seat, a fan and a cold drink and let me introduce today's stellar fellow detainees. First up, we have journalist and author of Haven't You Heard? A Ruthless Look into Westminster's Gossip Culture, Marie Leconte. Welcome back to the Bunker, Marie. Thank you for having me. Marie, ahead of England's final pre-Euro 2020 warm-up against Romania, some England fans jeered their own team for taking the knee in a show of support for the Black Lives Matter movement. All but two Romanian players joined in the tribute. And to be fair, most fans broke into applause in response to the hecklers. What did you make of it all? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think, you know, as you pointed out, the main thing to remember, I think, is that the vast majority of the fans there were actually on the side of the players taking the knee. But um, no, so what I found um, especially baffling, I think, by the entire affair was the fact that not one but two Conservative MPs all spoke out. So I think first it was Lee Anderson, uh, who said he would boycott the England games um, as a result <laughs> of the taking the you know, decision. And then, no, which was sort of great, because... You know, that was already quite bad. But then Brendan Clark Smith clearly saw that, another Tory MP, saw that and was like, okay, how can I top that in some way? Um, And then decided to write a post uh, comparing uh, the taking the knee decision to the Nazi salute at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Well done. Well done. I didn't think, you know, that the bar could sink that much lower, but it could. Uh, So I think that that that's the thing I've been baffled by. It's all depressingly predictable. And on Monday, the Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, told the ECB to think again about suspending cricketer Ollie Robinson for racist and sexist tweets a decade ago. Now, put those two things together. In the past, politicians got involved. If an organization didn't do the right thing, how did we get to this parallel dimension in which the government tells off sports bodies for doing the right thing apparently too much. I think there's a few things to that Oliver Dowden incident, to be fair. So I think the first one is that actually, um, without being boring, but I'm not sure as a society, we've not really decided what to make about all defensive posts people posted when they were young, especially when they were teenagers. Like Stories like that, I feel like, crop up again and again, and we never quite know. There's still not a script, I think, at a society level on what we do. And obviously, it does look weird for a Secretary of State to get involved, but we're still not sure. Especially um, in the middle of the the sort of, inquest by the relevant body they I mean they they literally can't respond oh no exactly and I think I, I've read something I have to say I'm not normally a cricket fan because um I am not from here um so I, I've chosen not to understand it <laughs> um but but you know but my understanding from from reading people on Twitter I'm going to be honest here is that you know suspending him is not it, it's not the final decision it's just suspending him while the investigation <laughs> happens so it, it did feel a bit odd for Dowden to kind of intervene at this stage 
Hmm. Also joining us, we welcome back former diplomat, and we continue to suspect spy, please don't kill me, Arthur Snell. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hello, Alex. I, I promise not to kill you for the moment. <laughs> Arthur, Ukraine's Euro 2020 strip has been unveiled and caused uproar in Russia because it depicts an outline of the country that includes the Crimean Peninsula, which is a part of the country. Did I miss a, a, a memo? Russia having invaded, annexed and occupied Ukrainian territory after the vast majority of the international community said, nope, that's still Ukraine. Why the fake shock and clutching of pearls at including it in its map? Well, it's a good question. I mean, of course, some significant international players have recognized uh, Russia's sovereignty over Ukraine, places such as Abkhazia and South Ossetia. I don't know if you've been following <laughs> following their, uh, their their moves on the international stage. But yes, uh, yes, um, no sort of sensible country thinks that Russia has any right to to Crimea. But I think I think that the pearl clutching might slightly be because it's the kind of thing you'd expect the Russians to do, sort of provocative, rather <laughs> clever, you know, a sort of classic twist. So, you know, Ukrainians beating the Russians at their own game. <laughs> now, the outline was quite discreetly stitched into the fabric, approved by UEFA ages ago, and everyone seems to only really have cottoned on when it was highlighted, literally lit up in a promotional video. Is this a really clever PR by Ukraine to make Crimea a talking point again? And has Russia walked into, uh, apologies, the bear trap by taking the bait? Well, it feels as though they might have. I think one of the one of the things that you know Russia's very good at sort of pointing the finger at other countries in in terms of the sort of the fake outrage and the, and the sort of accusation of bad faith. So in a way, it's quite fun to see them put on the spot for a change. And just to prove we have not weirdly converted into a football podcast, we're very excited to be joined this week by Labour MP and Shadow Treasury Secretary, Bridget Phillipson. Hello, Bridget. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good to be with you. Bridget, we last spoke on our sister podcast, Oh God, What Now?, days after Parliament had been prorogued, as it turned out unlawfully. Since then, we have seen a concerted campaign from the government to limit both Parliament and Court's power over it. Is this executive overreach just a feature of a large majority, or is there something more sinister to it? That does uh, feel like an absolute lifetime ago, back, um, back in the summer it? of 2019. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot's happened since then. General election, pandemic. Um, yeah, the, the, the months just roll on by. I think what we were promised, what the British people were promised, was that where powers were brought back into the UK, they would have more of a say over how things were done. And I think we've just seen hot air from the government. They're just not prepared to make that a reality, whether that's on discussions around trade deals or today, as we saw, where it comes to having a vote on our commitment uh, in terms of international development. They shouldn't be afraid of scrutiny. If they're clear that the arguments are strong, then let's have the debate. Let's have votes on these matters and Parliament can reach a view. The government shouldn't be running away from that kind of scrutiny. Okay, much more from Bridget Phillips and in the panel as we tackle today's topics. As the government prepares for global Britain to take its rightful place on the world stage and welcome its most powerful leaders to the G7 summit, 
Wouldn't it be nice if we had a frigging clue as to what Global Britain actually stood for? It wants ultra-low tax enclaves called freeports, and it wants a global agreement on minimum tax. It wants to lead the world on climate change while encouraging imports and exports from the other side of the world. It wants the fairest immigration system in the world, provided it means as few foreigners as possible can access it. It wants to stoke the fires of nativism in its domestic audience and speak the language of internationalism to global partners. It is definitely outward-facing, but in a weirdly aggressive, unwelcome way, like a global trade flasher with his Mac open. Bridget, one of the touted benefits slash threats of Brexit was that Britain's tax policy would be unshackled, so it would become Singapore on Thames. And one of the first things the Chancellor announced he would do with that freedom was free ports. And then the UK goes and agrees minimum tax thresholds with the G7 and is looking to expand this regulation globally. What's going on? Well, I think I think uh, government ministers will be better placed to uh, to answer that question because I'm not entirely clear either. I mean, I think it's it's welcome that we saw the agreement over the weekend around, you know, the minimum level of corporation tax. Although we think, you know, we could go a lot further on that. There are a lot of questions I think still outstanding around the detail and how it will be applied and whether it will really deliver the level playing field between those online tech giants and our high streets and. You know, many of them have had a really tough year with the pandemic and they're incredibly frustrated that they do what's asked of them. They pay their rates. They're a central part of our high streets. And yet the big players seem to operate to a different standard. At some, it feels, you know, to many smaller businesses on our high streets. I mean, on, on free ports, it's never been clear that they will deliver the benefits that the government claim. It's long been Rishi Sunak's pet project, which is kind of ironic because one of the few parts of the economy that looks set to benefit from free ports is actually the dog food industry. Um, so <laughs> in the level at which the minimum tariffs being set for this, uh, there's some you know research out there that demonstrates actually it's the dog food industry that is one of the few areas that will that will see uh, a growth uh, from the uh, introduction of free ports. And there are lots and lots of questions, I think, around the process of all of this and whether it will deliver prosperity and jobs for every part of our country it's really not clear that will happen and I think we need to see a much much clearer plan from the government about how we secure the recovery and how we make sure we have jobs and opportunity in every part of our country not just in areas that the chancellor decides he wants to hand a pot of money. I mean, it feels like a lot of this strategy at the moment is a mass of contradictions because foreign policies battling trade considerations and the government vacillates depending on which minister won the last round of that wrestling match. Do you think it is genuinely possible to have a foreign policy that is truly integrated with trade or is there always that sort of tension and is that sort of tension a good thing? Well I don't think you can divorce the two and in the discussions that are going to be taking place around future trade deals of course wider considerations around human rights and other abuses should be a central part of of what the government is saying. But there is just a complete lack of transparency, both in terms of what the government are trying to achieve. I think a lack of candour about the trade-offs that come when you're seeking to reach agreement with other countries. And I think Mm. the government need to be upfront and open with the British people 
about those kinds of trade-offs. So, you know, for example, will British farmers lose out on some of this? You know, what, what will be the benefits, but also what are the risks? It feels a lot of the time that ministers are just very keen to have photographs taken, whether it's, you know, in high-vis jackets, you know, opening a new bypass, or, you know, where it comes to trade deals, having a photograph taken, but are not prepared to either answer the difficult questions or set out exactly how we're going to see big benefits to our country arising from them. Mm. Now, last week, the UK's application to the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP for short, was accepted for consideration. What is Labour's position on membership? We see the advantage um, of seeking trade deals around the world. Of course we do. But, it, you know, it's just not at all clear, firstly, whether there'd be any opportunity to you know, veto China's proposed accession if we join the bloc first. I think generally we have to look with a great deal of care as to what this will what this will mean for kind of key sectors of our economy, um, for British interests, but also particularly where it comes to farming and food. Um, mm. And, you know, there has to be a role for Parliament in scrutinising all of this. It feels like the government wants to do much of it behind closed doors without proper scrutiny. And that's not what people were promised. It's not what we, t- we were told we would get. Uh, if we're going to have these powers operating uh, at the level of Westminster, then we need to have uh, a proper process for Parliament having its say and for there to be full and thorough discussion with the British people about the pros and the cons uh, of any of these trade deals. And that just at the moment feels completely absent. Hmm. Arthur, why are we focusing on a trade block thousands of miles away? Every trade expert agrees that the economic gains are minimal. But the more we face in other directions, the less chance there is of slowly inching closer to the EU again. Or is that the point? Does quickly committing to other paths make Brexit more irreversible? Well, that's a possibility, which I must say I hadn't really thought of. The answer to your question, why, is I've no bloody idea. (laughs) There's basically, there's only two trade deals worth having if you're the UK that would really make a difference. One is the one that we gave up on called the EU, and the other would be a really big comprehensive deal with the US, which is not impossible, but of course comes with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of tough decisions about what happens to UK farmers and that kind of thing. But Mm. those are the two really, really huge economies that we do serious amounts of trade with and that could make a real difference to to our our economy here. With these distant Pacific nations, you know, it's it's a question of whether or not a current trade, about 6% of our our trade, might go up to 8%. I mean, it's just, it's not going to shift the needle. Now, ultimately, open trade always depends on a relatively level playing field. So, because anything else basically quickly becomes dumping. And you cannot level the playing field without looking to harmonize workers' rights, subsidy regimes, safety rules, environmental protections, all of that stuff. So are we basically rejoining the European communities back in the 70s, <laughs> hoping that as the, the this trade block develop, it, you know, its states won't seek to harmonize more? It just seems really weird. Yeah, and I think a lot of this stuff hasn't really been thought through. I mean, let's just look at the Australia example, because that's the the first sort of big trade deal of the post-Brexit era. And after talking for months about how our government would protect British farmers, it turns out 
that they won't protect British farmers. And so I think, you know, just as the Northern Ireland Protocol turned out to be a document they weren't really planning to adhere to, <laughs> we're genuinely dealing with a government that doesn't really care very much about what it says because it sort of hopes that no one's checking the details. Now, unfortunately, it seems that other countries have diplomats who are rather more punctilious in looking at the small print. So, you know, it seems very possible we'll get sucked into a rather um, challenging and highly competitive trading bloc that ultimately our society and our politics aren't prepared to grapple with. And then we'll spend the next 20 years... <laughs> Sounds very familiar. It does, doesn't it? And then we'll spend the next 20 years trying to back out of it. Marie, it seems we were poorly prepared for Brexit, which turned the UK effectively into a supplicant. So we need deals and we need them fast. Have we effectively sacrificed any chance of an ethical or a green foreign trade policy because we're not in a position to be choosers, basically? Um, yes, but then I'd also argue that I'm not convinced the government massively cares anyway. But actually, so before this, I wanted to come back to this because I actually wrote a piece on Global Britain, the fact that we had no idea what it meant way back last year. It was meant to be published in March 2020. Couldn't get published in the end because apparently something happened big in the news then. I can't remember <laughs> what it was. And I'd found, and really, so I went back to look at it because it made me laugh so much at the time. So Penny Morden, who at the time was Secretary of State for International Development, said, you know, in this sort of like <laughs> big speech said, want a vision for global Britain? Then look at the people of this country. Look at who we are. Courageous, compassionate, <laughs> committed to democracy. And with those values, just think what we can become. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> made me laugh so much at the time. And even again, when I found it today, because there's nothing there. It's just words. It's just words. And I think that's sadly what nearly two years on now, you know, it, it's not evolved massively. Um, and there's been obviously there was the integrated review that came out in March um, on foreign policy, defense policy, etc. But there's still not much. And I think that's why, you know, you keep saying thing, uh, seeing things like, for example, the foreign aid cuts, you know, the kind of debate that's been going on over the past few days that kind of came out of nowhere. I wanted to ask you on that because, I mean, the whole purpose of foreign aid being express, expressed as a percentage is that it shrinks during tough times. So it has been cut significantly already by virtue of the economy being smaller. So in terms of our total budget, 0.2% is a rounding error. So why has the government chosen to go to battle with its own backbenchers on this? I'm not So I think I may have to give a bit of a Bridget answer here in that, you know, Please ask the government and not me because I'm as baffled as you are. But, um, but <laughs> more seriously, that's become known as a Bridget now. <laughs> but, no, but I, I do think so. What I find weird is that because I actually went to look at the um, the polling on that, and actually that was pulled quite recently, and only 17% of people uh, in Britain are opposed to foreign aid uh, spending according to the British Foreign Policy Group, which is not a massive number at all. But I, th I think there's always been a bit of a constituency within the uh, Conservative Party, and especially the Conservative Parliamentary Party, that has just always wanted to cut aid. And I, I seem to remember that was even a debate in the Cameron years. Um, and that is, you mm. know, that's going to be the quite, you know, sort of like red wall MPs. Esther McVeigh uh, did a piece in the Daily Telegraph, I think yesterday, defending, you know, the, the idea. What was it? It's something... An interesting take. I think it was like not cutting foreign aid would be betraying the red wall. So oh. that's a reach. But uh, but but I, I I mean the only solution I can sort of you know think of any reason is that yeah there's just a bunch 
of you know sort of like Tory MPs who've always wanted to cut it anyway and I think have found in the pandemic a convenient excuse to do so. And just before recording, news broke that the Speaker had rejected the rebel amendment spearheaded by Tory backbencher Andrew Mitchell to restore the level of foreign aid. Do you think the issue will go away now? Or is this basically pressure deferred rather than... Hmm. I'd say deferred. So very conveniently, I wrote a piece on this today. So I've had a lot of time to think about it. Um, no, so what I found really interesting that in the list of rebels, other people who obviously were, were against um, the cutting of foreign aid, there were quite a lot of Brexiteers. So, you know, both prominent people like um, David Davis and Sir Edward mm-hmm. Lee, Crispin Blunt, um, but also even some kind of, you know, quiet backbenchers you don't normally hear from massively, but who voted and campaigned for Brexit back in 2016. So it's not it's not a case of, you know, this is a vote leave government anyway, we'll just ignore the sort of, you know, Remainer MPs who just love the foreigners. It, it is clearly that that opposition is also coming from some Brexiteers. So I think as a result, it'll, it, it will become harder, I think, for Number 10 to ignore this on the long run. Yeah, it's interesting. Arthur, finally, if even if this sort of buccaneerism makes sense as a long-term direction, is the timing unfortunate? With Biden going in the opposite direction, pushing for tax reform, climate action, warning again this week that any failure to fully implement the Northern Ireland Protocol is a trade deal breaker. Is the UK basically still struggling to adjust its foreign policy fully to the fact Trump lost? I think there is a bit of that. You know, the whole sort of Brexit theme was predicated on a slightly Trumpian world where countries worked in their bilateral and national interest and the idea of sort of grand alliances was seen as a bit sort of passé. And that's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Because Biden has come in, of course, he's here in Cornwall this week, uh, and he doesn't really see the world that way. Um, mm. And there is, going back to what I said earlier, whilst having that trade deal with the US is genuinely something that would make a difference to our economy, There's no evidence whatsoever that it's it's likely to happen anytime soon. And the political uh, choices that the UK would have to make, I think, would be extremely hard to do this side of an election. Now, in recent weeks, we've seen growing calls to investigate the theory that COVID-19 leaked from a Wuhan lab. U.S. President Joe Biden has called for an investigation into the origins of the virus, and British intelligence agencies have said that the idea of a lab leak is feasible. But after being roundly dismissed throughout 2020, why is this theory back in the news? And if any evidence of a leak was covered up, will we ever know? We spoke to Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor, to find out more. My name's Natasha Loder. I'm the health policy editor of The Economist. The lab leak theory is simply the idea that in the process of studying back coronaviruses, one of these viruses infected a human, potentially in the laboratory, and started the chain of infection that we now know is the beginning of COVID-19. Generally speaking, we find that when new diseases emerge, we can trace their origins back to what we would call a natural origin. So that would be farming animals, working with them, eating bushmeat. But over the years, we've seen a lot of disease emergence coming this way from natural origins when humans have encroached into wild areas. But what people are saying now is that, well, given that you have this Institute of Virology in Wuhan, um, you know, isn't it possible that some of the viruses that they were working with actually uh, started the chain of infection? 
the lab leak theory is a perfectly credible theory. Lab leaks happen all the time. And in fact, with quite depressing regularity. Um, The last known death from smallpox was the result of a lab leak in Britain, for example, in 1978. We also know that the first SARS leaked out of labs on a number of occasions. Singapore, Taiwan, a Beijing lab had two leaks. Most alarming of all, there was a pandemic of flu uh, that spread around the world in 1977. And it's now widely thought that this particular virus actually probably came from a lab. So the question about whether things have been covered up in the early days of the pandemic is difficult to answer because it's like asking, is anything secret? What we do know is that the animal market was shut down very quickly and cleaned up very quickly. And we did lose evidence in the early days about what animals were there. There is missing raw data from the first 174 patients who were known to have COVID. And the Chinese have this data. And they didn't give it to the WHO investigators. And they've been asked for it. And they've been asked for it since. And they haven't provided it. And it could be very useful in trying to figure out what the point of origin is for this virus in Wuhan. And at this stage, I am starting to feel that this is secret information and it is unhelpfully secret. With regards to finding the origin of this virus, the truth is we may never know. And unfortunately, never knowing doesn't necessarily mean that there has been a cover-up. We do get situations like this with other diseases where we just don't know where they came from, but it's quite clear that they did come from an animal. We just can't pinpoint the sort of chain of infections. The thing to bear in mind is that nature is a really powerful force and the emergence of new animal viruses is going to keep happening unless we act and take these things more seriously. I would say one of the good things is that Quite a few countries are taking the wildlife trade uh, much more seriously. China has, has banned it and, and there's you know, a lot more interest now in kind of controlling animal infections. But we, we need to do more. Marie, the Wuhan lab theory was first endorsed by populists in the Trump administration and Fox News. Were we too quick to dismiss the theory by association, allowing the far right and fringes to dominate uh, over scientific scrutiny? Well, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I think that what's quite important to remember is that as far as I can tell, the evidence has not really changed, that we don't have any proof that it came from a lab. I think it's just that, I can't remember who it was, but I think this all started a few weeks or months ago when, was it New York Mag? I can't remember. Anyway, some prominent uh, American publication did this really long read, effectively just saying, what if it was a lab leak after all? Mm. Um, And and so, so, you know, the evidence has not changed. I think it's just that the media coverage of it has. And it it, it is a weird one because... Basically, this is just me using my words to say I'm not sure because because fundamentally we probably should have said actually we have no idea. But then the problem is I remember actually my own mother um, believed in the lab leak uh, theory that really early on in the pandemic, and I remember finding it really frustrating to try and argue with her because all I could say was well we have no proof, and then she said well you know in that case it's possible then isn't it? Um, mm. Obviously, infuriating, you know, realising your mother was right once again. <laughs> I, I saw a regular panellist, I hear Shah's stand-up show yesterday in a real theatre with actual people, and he was talking exactly about how annoying it was 
how sure his parents were about everything and how people don't like uncertainty. So is it maybe a little bit of that? Do we want to know what to believe on something so important, even if we know we'll never get to the bottom of it? I think, so I would say my, my, my theory would be that COVID, the beginnings of COVID sort of happened at a time, you know, it, it was the kind of peak of QAnon and all, all of the kind of conspiracy theory stuff in the US, which obviously in hindsight was just the beginning really, but at the time felt like the peak of it. Um, and it was, and I feel like the discussions we were having at the time were exactly saying, well, actually, you know, things sometimes happen at random, not everything is a conspiracy, you know, there are not people in the shadows sort of planning everything in the world. That's not how it works. And so I think because, because you know, the political sphere had been discussing this for so many months already by that point, when I think that story came out, it felt natural to keep to the same narrative and say, actually, yet again, this is a thing where there's no proof that, you know, there are people that this is man-made in any way. So I, mm. I wonder if we're kind of victims of our own debunking narrative, if that makes sense. Yeah. Arthur, has there been an intentional conflation by populists of an accidental leak with a full-blown sort of biological warfare? Does that make transparency less likely? Or was it already against the odds we'd ever find out what happened out of a state as secretive as China? Well, I think on the point about intentional conflation, I think, yes, there has been some of that in some of the really kind of irresponsible corners, particularly in the US sort of populist media. And and just to sort of spell that out, it's the difference between the, the accidental leak of the virus from a place where they're researching viruses to the idea that, that evil Chinese scientists created a killer virus and then launched mm. it out into the world. And I think some people have taken advantage of that possibility. Um, and of course, it does sound like a, a, a pitch for a, for a movie. So, you know, we're living in a bizarre world. But then having said that, it is not helped by the fact that China has done everything possible to make it difficult for, for the international community to understand what has really gone on. And we may never know. And it will always be up for debate. And up people's uh, agendas will be hard to discern from the actual facts of the matter. Bridget, is there a way to internationalize evidence when it comes to things that affect people cross borders? So we have seen this in everything from the poisoning attacks in Salisbury to Malaysia Airlines, Flight 17 being shot down over Ukraine to COVID-19. The country that owns the evidence is able to shape the narrative. And even if it does not, it is open to accusations that it shaped the narrative. Is it a time for a new treaty on this? Is it a time to somehow say, whenever something cross-borders happen, we need to have some international investigatory body that goes in and everyone trusts? I mean, international cooperation is clearly very important. And I think where it comes to COVID, it will continue to be so. You know, if we don't see the vaccine programme rolling out worldwide, then we will see further uh, further variants coming to our shores. So it's, it's in our national interest to do that. Of course, it's the right thing to do to make sure that particularly uh, developing countries have got access to the vaccine. And, you know, that does, you know, presents, you know, it's right that we consider where, you know, how this originated in the first place. But I would also say we, we probably shouldn't lose sight of what we need to do closer to home because we shouldn't imagine that this is the only pandemic or the only kind of event of its kind we'll ever see. We know as a country that we weren't prepared for this. Uh, the plans that were there were, were focused on the flu, not on what we've seen more recently, although even those flu plans were not 
were not what they should be. And also we completely lacked any kind of economic plans. So what happens again in, in the event that we need to take action where it comes to closing down parts of our economy or businesses or asking people to stay at home? Throughout this crisis, the government haven't had the measures that come with the health response working in lockstep uh, with economic support and wider interventions too. So I think, it, of course, it's important that we look at the big international questions that all of this you know, presents. But at the same time, I think there's a lot that we need to do closer to home ahead of any public inquiry that's going to follow because you know, we, we don't really know that this is either the last we've seen of it or that we won't see similar events of its kind in the future. Now, our guest today, Bridget Phillipson, is the Labour MP for Houghton and Sunderland South, and she's the Shadow Treasury Secretary. Hello, Bridget. Can we probe a few issues a little further with you? Absolutely. Now, the Queen's speech said that the government would level up opportunities across all parts of the United Kingdom. This is such vague terminology as to be nearly useless. But I want to ask, what in your mind would constitute evidence of levelling up? I think, first of all, I don't think any of us have any idea what the government means when they talk about levelling up. In fact, they've never defined it themselves. And it's a slogan that they've trotted out uh, in recent months, over many months, without any kind of definition around it. So, you know, does it mean higher wages? Does it mean more jobs in parts of the country that need investment? Is it about livelihoods or or productivity, it's never been clear what it is they're seeking to do by all of this. And what we've seen much of the time has been pots of money decided in in Whitehall by ministers and handed out to parts of the country, often for, you know, where the rationale is far from clear that it's being driven by need. I think one of the biggest challenges that we face as a country is around skills. And we see big imbalances, not just between regions of the country, but also within regions you know, far too many adults don't have uh, the skills they need in order to get different jobs. And over the course of the last decade, things have got considerably worse for lots of people. So the government appears to be talking about solutions to problems that they have themselves created over the course of these last 10 years. You know, further education where people would have the chance to get new skills and change their lives and do things differently has you know, been gutted. Uh, it's been stripped of, of what it needs and it's made it harder for people to get on. For me, we need to see in every part of our country opportunities and hope. Where you live and where you grow up does not determine what you can achieve in your life. And all too often, it does exactly that. Okay, but policy announcements have been thin on the ground from Labour. And I I completely understand it has been a very strange period. And we're a very long way away from an election. But do you accept that you should be articulating the alternative, that it is in this vacuum that things like levelling up can sound okay because there's nothing to challenge them? I mean, I think you're right that over the course of the last year or so, particularly, you know, with with the terrible pandemic we've seen as a country, it's quite right that people have been more focused on what the government has to say by way of announcement and, you know, want to, you know, want to make sure they've got a job to go to and that their families are, are looked after and, you know, the terrible health consequences we've seen uh, from the pandemic. So I think that first and foremost, I don't think people wanted us to be kind of 
taking cheap shots at the government. But where it comes to policy and what we've been saying on it, I mean, just last week, we set out a very comprehensive plan for how we would support children and young people uh, coming out of the pandemic. So both in educational terms, but also their overall well-being, it's been a really, really tough time for Mm. children. And the government, you know, talk a good game, but have you know lost their education um, catch-ups are who felt that what they were offering was just not ambitious enough and have just completely I think let down our children and young people who will need significant support in the years ahead not just this summer and not just a matter of holiday clubs over the summer but above and beyond that how do we make sure that inequality isn't entrenched uh, because of the impact of the pandemic and you know we've set out a very kind of clear set of proposals from you know activities for every child mental health support uh, tutoring support for every child who needs it that's not what the government are promised are promising so i think it's right that we're focused particularly on the areas um that the british people care about most coming out of the pandemic and i think support for children and families is central to all of that Mm. I feel we're moving back towards education, 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 and quite rightly so. Now, your constituency voted heavily for Brexit. Has there been an impact uh, of Brexit on your constituency that you know of, either good or bad? I think it is, it's at times hard to disentangle the impact of Brexit and the impact of the pandemic. But if you look at you know, the figures around exports, it's clear that the deal that the government has negotiated has meant that we've taken a hit on exports. And exports are absolutely central to so many communities like mine. You know, we one of the few regions of the country that over many years has consistently had a balance of trade surplus. So we do very well on exporting around the world. I think what people want to see now is how we make sure that we have the transport infrastructure that encourages businesses to come and invest, um, how we make sure that everyone has the skills that they need to get on in life. And I think part of that involves being positive about what we've got to offer, what we've done in the past, but also where we can go in future, because I don't think it's helpful, as sometimes is the way in which the debate is framed, which is north versus south or region against region. And, And too often, the way in which the government approach has approached this whole agenda has pitted regions and nations against one another. And I think we need to move away from that and look to develop the kind of innovative, great businesses and opportunities that can and should exist. You know, my part of the country mm. wants to play up, you know, we want to play our part in the national recovery, but we need a government on our side giving us the tools that we need in order to do that. And we haven't had that over the last decade. Now, since the vaccine rollout has begun, Labour has seen itself lagging behind the Tories in the polls. As a politician, frustrating though it is, you must uh, recognise how brilliantly they've appropriated the vaccine rollout as their own credit. What can you as opposition do reappropriate that credit for the NHS where it belongs? Well, you only have to look to the incredible success of the vaccine rollout, you know, in Wales as well, to appreciate that it's not simply that something that's being driven, um, you know, by the government in Westminster alone. The Welsh Labour government have had tremendous success uh, with their vaccine rollout programme. But, you know, of course, as a party, you know, things are still still tough for us and we need to do more and to improve and to demonstrate to the British people that we've changed. I mean, after what was a really 
devastating general election defeat in 2019, we always knew it was going to take time and we always knew it was going to take time to persuade people uh, to come back to us. I mean, we had, a, in some senses, a mixed set of results. We, we got good results in, in some, some areas, not so good in other parts of the country. But for me, it's not about making excuses or providing you know, any kind of uh, excuses for how things went then, but more about looking to the future and how we as a party demonstrate to the British people uh, that we're listening, that we're on their side and that we've got their interests at heart. And I think, you know, we'll see more from Kia in the months ahead now things are starting to open up a bit more. where He can be out around the country speaking to voters, particularly those voters who um, aren't voting Labour. That's, you know, they're the people we need to be spending our time speaking to, to understand what we need to do more and how we demonstrate that we've changed as a party, but that we also believe that Britain has a bright and optimistic future ahead and that we you know, set out in the run-up to the next election a manifesto that captures that hope and optimism for a better future after what's been you know, such a difficult time for everyone. Now, on that 2019 election, in your constituency, you went from a, basically a 60-30 split with your nearest rival in 2017 to a 40-32 split in 2019, with an extra 15% going to the Brexit party. Do you look at results like the the Hartlepool by-election and think, bugger, that will be me in a couple of years? Well, I I take nothing for granted. I never have done and I never never will do because I've always believed that in every general election you have to earn afresh the trust of voters, that you have to work hard for every single vote. That's what I've always done as an MP and that's what I'll continue to do. And, you know, whilst some of the analysis around this is is interesting, um, I'm not sure it presents entirely the full picture on this. Um, But, you know, we are making progress as a party. Uh, The response on the doors in the set of elections we've just had was a lot better than it had been Mm. in 2019. I mean, back in 2019, uh, the sense of anger that people felt with us was, was very real. Bridget, I have spoken to a number of political commentators and sages in the last year and all come back to one thing. Labour lacks a narrative. It needs a plain, direct story that it tells to people, a proposal to voters whose available bandwidth for politics is limited. What do you think that narrative should be? I mean, that that is right. And I think... All of us who spend a great deal of time thinking and talking about politics do well to reflect on the fact that most people devote a very small portion of their time to uh, you know, what's going on in the news in terms of politics. We have a very narrow window in order to make an impact. Mm. It's been hard over the course of the last year, of course it has, because people have rightly been focused on on their li- you know, on, on keeping people safe and on livelihoods and on businesses. But as we start to emerge from this, you will hear more from the party, from the Labour Party, about the kind of Britain that we want to build and setting out in much more detail how we will make Britain the best place to grow up in and the best place to grow old in. You've seen some of that already just last week with the plan we've set out around um, support for children and young people, uh, where the government have you know, talked a good game on uh, what addressing inequality might mean, the so-called levelling up agenda, but where it comes down to it, it's just all hot air, you know. I find mm. it extraordinary as well that we've, you know, they've been in charge now for 11 years and they seem to think it's somebody else's fault that we've ended up in a position that we were so ill-prepared 
uh, going into this pandemic and that the foundations of our economy and wider society were so weakened. And they were weakened because of the actions of successive Conservative governments over the past decade. And that is also an argument that we're really going to have to continue to make, which is, you know, life has got harder for a lot of people. And it's because of the very same people that are now promising to improve your life chances. So, so much of it rings hollow and we've, we will continue to make that case. Finally, from the desk of Donald Trump has been taken down. From the what of who, I hear you ask, you may not know that was the name of Trump's much ballyhooed blog taken from us tragically young after only a month. And you may not know because hardly anyone did. According to the Washington Post, from an already very modest first day peak of 150,000 interactions, the blog plummeted to fewer than 30,000 on its second day and hadn't exceeded 15,000 interactions on any day since. It is probably the first time I have empathized with Trump. I too have bigged up projects and spent enormous amounts of money on hobbies which then turned out to be too hard or too boring, or perish the thought, both hard and boring. I'm looking at you, chess books. So let me ask my guests whether they too are the sorts of people who believe committing fully and publicly will make a thing impossible to give up, only to find out that their true talent, like me, is in creative excuses. Marie, I sense a kindred spirit. <laughs> what you would be e- absolutely right. What easels, origami supplies, cider-making equipment and flubbuster 2000s lurk in your attic? Well, that, again, I am so glad you asked um, because I actually had to make a list for myself to remember everything just <laughs> in the past year. I mean, obviously, there's been a pandemic and a lockdown and I live alone, so that's not helped. But in the past year alone, I have tried and then stopped writing a children's book, sewing, voguing, the dancing, drawing, painting, tattooing myself, ballet, (laughs) hula hooping lessons, learning Russian on Duolingo, and becoming a Snapchat star. I knew it. You really didn't let me down. (laughs) Arthur, Arthur, what still-in-its-box treasure have you had to give away to a friend or family member that you were absolutely certain would be life-changing at the time of purchase? Just next to my garage, there's a bright green, enormous, upturned canoe, which I think is... (laughs) And and my wife was not particularly impressed when I bought it, pointing out that it was very large and very heavy. And, you know, what were you planning to do with this? And, of course, I assured her that it would be practically every weekend I'd be disappearing off, you know, like a sort of Canadian explorer. And, anyway, it's it's now sort of slowly filling up with dead leaves and, and mud. Bridget, are you ready to admit to me that you're a flake occasionally or will you pretend you finish everything you start? I must confess that I'm actually quite a boring person and <laughs> when I set my mind to things, I stick at it. So, um, so in, in recent months, having not played hockey since I was 18, I've joined a hockey club and started playing hockey. Uh, and I play hockey regularly now and play matches and I take it very seriously now. And take part in training and um, I'm enjoying doing a sport that I've not done for a very long time that I used to love when I was a teenager so I'm afraid I can't offer you <laughs> a failure. I can only offer you um, a tale of um, 
persistent, shall we say. So your contribution is that the one thing you gave up too soon, you've actually gone back to it now to finish it. <laughs> well, I've gone back to it perhaps a bit uh, a bit rustier than where I left where I last uh, left off. So yes, I'm yes. not the hockey player I was when I was 18, but I'm uh, I'm working on it. None of us get less rusty, I'm afraid. Now, before we go, it's time for our panel's escape routes. What are the TV, films, music, books and miscellaneous that are taking the mind off politics? In 20 seconds or less, Arthur. Well, it's not the canoeing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, no, I have actually been very much enjoying um, uh, a novel by friend of the pod, uh, John Sweeney, called Elephant Moon, set in wartime Burma. Good sort of pacey thriller, interesting setting, recommended to everybody. I love the fact that Arthur's idea of going faster is going at exactly the same speed, but a slightly higher pitch. (laughs) (laughs) Marie, what's your escape? Um, Well, I finally read Master and Margarita by Bulgakov, which it turns out is incredibly good. Oh, my goodness. I've done a play on that. <laughs> oh, it, it turns out it's brilliant. Um, and also the video game Hades, which is one of the best games I've ever played. What is yours, Bridget? The thing that keeps me sane most of the time is uh, running. Um, so I do that listening to music and podcasts. And I would just give a plug for the um, fantastic, quite recent album from one of Sunderland's finest bands, Field Music, who've got a brilliant album out at the moment. Brilliant new album. Um, and I'd recommend that. Brilliant. My escape route very, very quickly is I've been watching the series Them on Amazon Prime. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is in the horror genre, but it is in 50s America and involves a black family moving to a very white suburb. And the real horror is what goes on around that. It's really, truly brilliant. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Arthur Snell. Thank you. To Marie Leconte. Thank you. And to our special guest, Bridget Philipson. Thanks. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Remember, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. And you can get the podcast early and advert-free, get our splendid merchandise and access to our live Zooms. Backers get an honorary salute on the show, and it goes something like this. Hello, and best wishes from me to Eugenie Caron, Robin Meltzer, Gemma Sheridan, and Pegita Malpletia. It's a big thanks from me to Dave Hardy, Zia T, Mike Andrew, and Nicholas Danhope. And finally, best wishes from me to Marco Jvara, Kate Wood, Alex Davis, and Mike C. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andreu with Marie Leconte and Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>